Well, <laughs> on this first episode, like we don't do a last time on Pen Pen Files. No, that's true. We do yeah. not have a last time on. Um, do we but, do? But in its place, we will have uh, a little blurb about our director. So welcome everyone to Pen Pen Pals. I'm one of your hosts, Alex. Hi, this is Blixa. And hey, it's Ben. And this week, uh, we're flying solo, no one with us, but we're starting a new series uh, that we're hoping is kind of a, I don't know, sister series or like complementary work to what we just finished, Serial Experiments Lane. Today, we're going to go with Satoshi Kon's only series, which is called Paranoia Agent. Yay. Yeah, so, so he's done some manga, he's done some mainly known for his films, and this is his one kind of TV anime series. It's a 13 parter like mm -hmm. Lane. Mm -hmm. What would be his most famous film? I don't know. When I was growing up, I thought it was Perfect Blue, but I think a lot more people have heard of Paprika, which was his final film, actually. Mm -hmm. Yeah, or final finished work, right? Because I guess he died suddenly of uh, pancreatic cancer while he was working on his last film, which is something like Dream Machine or Dream... Dreaming machines? Dreaming machines. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Sort of sounds like paprika, but <laughs> yeah, very much. And and as we'll learn in this series, and I think if we watch his other films, um, that idea of like the dream and and reality breaking down the physical world and the dream world is is kind of present throughout all of his works. Isn't there a dreaming machine Easter egg in paprika? Oh, I don't know. I mean, there's definitely they have like the dream machine, the little uh, headpiece you wear. This is future editing, Alex. The unfinished Satoshi Kon film is called Dreaming Kids, and a movie poster for it can be seen in Paprika alongside posters for Kon's other films. So I, I have a little blurb, but before we do that, uh, does anybody have, um, what do you call it, a history with this series already? So, so I've, I've watched this a couple of times. Um, I don't know. It, it hasn't probably been that long, but I have just like a horrible memory for this stuff. So it's <laughs> like, you know, the main thing is I remember really liking it. Um, I think the, the last time I watched some of it was after I'd started doing podcasting and stuff. So one thing that stuck out to me, I think similar to Lane, this is like a show that has incredible sound design, like the... Mm -hmm. The music, the sound, everything is really on point. And I think, I think in general, you know, because this is Satoshi Kone, I think there's just like a lot of like attention to to detail and sort of like the the production quality of it. It's just like very on point. Yeah, um, there's a lot of animation style shifting. So I have never seen this, or I, I, I'm sorry, I have seen this episode and two episodes from this because Blixa has agreed to be our guinea pig and watch uh, blind on each episode. Yay! But I have wanted to watch this series, just like Lane. I had heard about this for years and years and years, and actually when it uh, crossed the pond over to uh, America, it came out on Toonami. And when I saw advertisements for it, I was super excited. I don't know what it was. It was the imagery of this like golden bat and this skater kid and this like strange, uh, uh, what do you call it? Like mascot that was walking around. And I just like lost track of it and never watched an episode. Mm. So this is like, I don't know, 15, like teenage me is like, living out a dream now because i finally <laughs> get to watch it that's awesome yeah I, I think like lane too this is sort of like a maybe it's not as much of a vibe anime but it's very mm -hmm. like atmospheric i don't know yeah i think it's a, a fun show mm -hmm. so alex did you say there's a golden bat in this anime yeah yeah uh there's a lot of color choices which are really fascinating in this and yeah gold is a uh, a prominent color Okay. Does golden bat mean anything to anyone? Uh, oh, right, right. Isn't there, it's like the first anime superhero yeah. or something? I don't know if that's true or if it's apocryphal. Like the theory is that golden bat is like the world's first superhero predating Superman. Ooh, okay. And it's like this skeleton faced guy. Yeah, that has any superpower that the writer decided <laughs> wait, wait, wait. I, I mean, like, you, you guys both know what you're talking about, obviously, but like, I have no idea what you're talking about. So what is, is this like, um, like a Western comic book or started out as a manga and then uh, became an anime and then there's live action things. Yeah. So strictly Japanese. And and so and what time period are we talking about or what? Oh, my God, oh, man. Let me see. 
So, I mean, Superman is like around World War II, right? So would this mm-hmm. be 30s or something like that? Uh, okay, so it was it was a manga created in 1931 and named after the Golden Bat cigarette brand. Are you smoking yet? And the manga at least predates World War II and Superman, I want to say, is 1937, 38. So yes, uh, it okay. does uh, uh, predate it by seven years. Wow. I yeah, I had no idea. And I I bet you that that is like an intentional illusion that from Satoshi Kone it has to be. <laughs> oh, man, I never thought about that. Cuz the 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 bat, it's not like mystical or anything, but it does have these fascinating almost like storytelling properties to it. Um, <laughs> but but we'll get into all of that. Okay, so okay. a little primer on Satoshi Kon. He started his career all the way back when he was in college. Um, he produced this manga called Toriko, which I could not find a whole lot about it, but it looked like uh, there are some frames that I saw from it that are very similar to Akira. And it's really interesting because his first leg up in the industry was right at the end of college or right after college. He started working as an assistant to uh, Katsuhiro Otomo, who is uh, the creator of Akira. Hmm. His first time that uh, one of his original stories was animated was also collaborating with Otomo. Otomo did a short story anthology called Memories, which if you haven't checked out, it's three uh, short animated uh, segments having to do with like memory. Um, and the first of them was written by Satoshi Kon. Yeah, that's a masterpiece, that segment from Memories. Yeah, it's called Magnetic Rose. There's a, a space salvage crew and they stumble across a, you know, tale as old as time they stumble across a distress signal um but when they find this uh like luxury spaceship inside of it they find it completely deserted except it's kind of haunted by the uh it's not clear whether it's like a ghost or just a digital impression of this really famous opera singer named ava which i think was interesting because it comes out in 1995 and so does evangelion that year huh interesting <laughs> He also has collaborated with Mamoru Oshi. He worked as a layout artist on Oshi's film Pat Labor 2. And uh, they even co-authored a manga together called Seraphim Wings of 26661336. (laughs) Oh my. Which is an incomplete, um, but there are some things that, there are some popular works that I've come across that reference it. Um, at least the imagery of it, which was all drawn by Cone, and the story was done by Oshi. You you had mentioned that he had worked as a layout artist, and I'd read that too, and I was curious what that means. And evidently, it's sort of you know, in animation, you have like sort of like the cells that are like the animated parts of it, and then you have backgrounds. And the layout artist, I guess, will sort of figure out what the backgrounds look like. Mm-hmm. Or, and like sizing and what's in them. And so they sort of make this sketch for then the background artist to do all of the painting and whatever uh, to create the backgrounds. But they're sort of like the designer of the backgrounds, basically. Oh, interesting. So that's a really important position. That's like the storyboardist for the backgrounds, right? Yeah. And, and it's sort of funny that, you know, he went on from that to be a director. I'm not sure if this is true, but I know in film, if you want to be like a film director, one of the jobs is, I think, sort of like location scouting, which is a little bit of a similar thing where you're finding the places to set all of the different shots. Whoa. Um, and so it's so maybe there's something similar in animation that this is sort of like the one step, you know, before, you know, figuring out kind of where everything goes and whatever is is sort of like setting up these scenes where stuff is taking place. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. So he also did uh, uh, just last couple of things. He did a um, he directed an episode of the Jojo's Bizarre Adventure OVA. No way. Um, which I would love to check out even just that episode because I'm sure as bonkers as that show is, out of context, it's even more bonkers. <laughs> oh my God. That's a huge bomb you just dropped. That's yeah. so freaking amazing. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then he's most known for his films, of which there are only four. You know, he died pretty young in his career. Uh, and those are in order Perfect Blue, which is a horror suspense thing, uh, Millennium Actress, which is kind of a history of Japanese film 
uh, Tokyo Godfathers, uh, which we uh, tried to cover in the past, and I've shelved the episode, but we may try to cover in the future. The hidden, the hidden episode <laughs> for our Patreon su- subscribers. <laughs> uh, and then his final film, Paprika, which is pretty well known and was a major inspiration for films like Inception. You know, like beyond his actual work, if we look at American live action filmmakers, he's been very influential on people in the industry. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Darren Aronofsky is, I think, very publicly a big fan of his. Mm-hmm. Um, I was just going to add to that thing you had mentioned about JoJo's Bizarre Adventures, uh, which was I was reading. So I think he worked with this production company, Madhouse. And evidently, part of their collaboration was they saw that episode of JoJo's Bizarre Adventures. <laughs> and I think we're like, who is this guy? And so that was part of what led to then his directorial debut um, of a feature film with Perfect Blue. So, wow. Yeah, so I had the same thought where I was like, man, I want to check this out now. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, ben and I have a, a, a very close relationship with, well, not close, but a long relationship with Satoshi Kon's works because we saw Perfect Blue when we were teenagers and it's kind of yeah. always stuck with me. Yeah, same. I think we like, like, it was just sort of like a random anime that Alex's brother had and we were just like, oh, this looks cool. And like, had no idea what we were getting into. And then like, <laughs> yeah, blew my young snap mind. forward like two hours later. And it's like, what the fuck just happened? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, I discovered Khan by accident. So we have these Fathom film events here. And uh, about once a month or so, they would just do an anime movie in the, in the theaters. And um, I would go to any of them just because mm-hmm. they were anime movies. Mm-hmm. And then Millennium Actress came up and I knew nothing about it. <gasps> and I just bought a ticket and went. And I was blown away. Uh, what an amazing experience. And that's why I'm kind of happy that uh, I'm going in blind on this series. Uh, specifically because it's satoshi khan yeah Yeah. and millennium actress like you know we just talked about him as a layout artist like i think that's his your like you know thesis statement on his abilities as a layout artist because there's so many moving parts in all of these Mm -hmm. wondrously fantastical shots in that film absolutely so i have one more thing and then we can start we can watch and discuss this i had found this one quote from the musical director the composer for this series um and i was hoping this name meant something to you Blixa, because not only is he a uh has he worked i guess in anime but he's like a japanese punk uh icon hmm. born in 1954 susumu hirasawa oh my god the uh, greatest I might be saying that wrong. Japanese cons- composer ever. Wait, really? Okay, so this is a big person. Yes. If you're familiar with like the soundtrack from Paprika. Really exotic. And that's part of his genius of taking compositional works and combining them with like really odd production techniques, mm-hmm. whether it's with samples or synthesizers or altered uh, real world sounds. Is he also the berserk guy? Yes. Oh wow. Okay, so he's like a big anime collaborator. Yeah. So yeah, he he has this long storied career, and I guess he's loved by some anime directors because he's got some big names under his belt working with them. Um. So I found this quote that's you know just easy. It's just on Wikipedia, but I really liked it. And then it mentioned something that I wanted to touch on because I think it will elucidate some of the things we're going to experience in this series as we go on. So he says at one point in his career, I dislike it when I hear someone describe my music as weird rock or weird techno. Surely this genre is hard to define in the music scene because it doesn't meet the standard of Western music charts. Hence, if a rock music critic attempts to judge me and my music, all they come up with is ambient music or music to take drugs to. The Japanese music scene doesn't help with introducing terms such as new age or trans personality. I want to let my music reach a broader part of society, being music born from Japanese culture. And I think this is why I want to connect to the world that doesn't exist in the music scene. Um, And so he mentions this thing, trans personality. I guess there's a musical genre or movement in Japan named after this, but transpersonal psychology is a subfield or school of psychology 
that integrates spiritual and transcendent aspects of the human experience with the framework of modern psychology. And I'm like, okay, well, maybe it's a fringe practice of psychology or something. But it had this fascinating descriptor, which is the transpersonal is defined as experiences in which the sense of identity or self extends beyond the individual or personal to encompass wider aspects of humankind, life, psyche, or the cosmos. And this series, I think, as we go on, is going to deal heavily with the sense of self and a sense of connection to the rest of society. So I thought that might be a cool cool quote for us to uh, start this on. <laughs> I love it. Is this um, series going to go cosmic? I hope so. I haven't watched through to the end, but we'll, we'll, we'll find out together. I mean, I think by the end of episode one, we get a little cosmic. Oh, okay. Oh my God, I'm excited. Have you been watching the next time on, Alex? Uh, oh no, I've missed that. Okay, so anything else before we start the watch? One thing, I mean, this is just trivia. I don't know if we need to put it in there, but this comes six years after Serial Experiments Lane. Okay. So it's in between Tokyo Godfathers and Paprika Mm -hmm. um, and Cohn's work. And and something I heard, which is kind of interesting, is evidently there's some uh, backgrounds and even like some animation from Tokyo Godfathers that just reused for this series. Because it's like, they're both set in Tokyo. Like we have this train going and, and it was the same production company. So this came out in 2004, which the same year as Samurai Champloo, um, the show Monster, the one about this like neurosurgeon. Oh, that's a famous one. Yeah. And then uh, it was the first year that Bleach came out was 2004. So that's sort of some of the stuff that's going on with anime then. And was Lane the same year as Cowboy Bebop 1998? Uh, that's, you know, the same guy that did Samurai Champloo. But, yeah, uh, no, you're absolutely right. It's 1998 <laughs> to 1999 is uh, Cowboy Bebop. And so that's interesting that not only are these kind of complementary series that we're covering, but they also have a corresponding Shinichiro Watanabe work. And yes, there is a major Easter egg from Tokyo Godfathers in this, um, which we'll get to. Okay, uh, I've got it queued up. This is episode one, the sub, uh, 24 minutes, 33 seconds, and I'm ready whenever we want to do a countdown. All right, I will do that then. Um, Three, two, one, play. That's Susumu Hirasawa, that's music (laughs) right there. A magnificent mushroom cloud in the sky. Yeah. This already feels like paprika. Oh, that's a frame from Millennium Actress. So he makes homage and like recycles his own work. That's great. That's that was using paprika. <laughs> it's before paprika for yeah. sure. I think it's before Millennium Actress too. What is the order? I guess before paprika after Millennium Actress. So this is his pen ultimate work. Mm-hmm. This scene makes me think of it as like a direct follow-up to Lane. Because like yes. in Lane, everyone had access, but now everyone's inundated with it six years later. Well, yeah, and it like starts off with like, I don't know, like people crossing the street. And <laughs> yeah. Like very, and then like a shot of a shadow right at the beginning. Um, and this this outro is worth watching once as well. I guess this is the same, uh, well, a different version of that same melody that played when um, across on the street. Uh, no, what's that? When the doll came to life. Oh, okay, that makes a lot of sense, as we'll see at the end of the sequence. What's his name again? More Maromi. M a r o m i. Well. I guess we should stop it. Oh, yeah. Don't you? Aren't, isn't it electric? Aren't you like, well, yes. we're just watching the next episode now, right? <laughs> I mean, mm. um, it is a little, and I'm sure we'll find this in uh, subsequent episodes. It's a little, the episodes are a little more self-contained than the Lane episodes. You know, the Lane episodes, very serial, uh, no pun intended. Mm. And so, like you said, Ben, it's very easy to just be like, well, just let the next one roll because I didn't get enough answers in this episode and I really need more answers. Uh, but these seem more like 
the structure is very good around the vignettes of the individual uh, characters and like how they relate to the overall plot. Yeah, it's sort of an anthology, but then with this overarching plot between it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so in that intro sequence, which is very powerful, um, you know, you see all the characters, I think, all the main characters that will appear throughout this series, right? But a lot of them weren't in that um, first episode. Do we just want to jump into it? I mean, so what what did you think of that uh, intro, Blixa? Um, Very intriguing. I imagine there's going to be some old lady that's going to be a part of a story at some point. Mm-hmm. I mean, I do agree with Alex. Like there's a lot of elements that are very reminiscent of Serial, serial Experiments Lane. I don't know what's going on, but I love yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> it does drop you in the deep end. Mm-hmm. There's no exposition. It is a very straight um, story because there's no, you know, there's no narrator. It's very much. And Satoshi Kone, it seems like, I don't know that he has narrators in his work. He He very much wants to curate the vision you're experiencing and and and, you know to his credit it it works very well and he uh obviously has a lot of that like you said layout artist uh uh, like experience behind his belt so so i guess yeah we start out we see all these characters they're sort of creepily laughing in these weird situations Mm -hmm. and then we have this music that like the melody and feel of it is like very happy but then like the lyrics like include stuff about, you know, like mushroom clouds in the sky, like don't worry about the tsunami, <laughs> but it's not all dark stuff. There's also stuff that's more like slice of life, but mm-hmm. then like all set in like cheeriness up to like 150 yeah. um, percent with all these people creepily laughing. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know exactly what it is um, they're trying to get across, but it's definitely a little sort of like intriguing, creepy, off-putting, but in a way that at least for me, it's more intriguing than like putting me off or something. Yeah, I'm not horrified. Um, I think with the the juxtaposition of the hyper, I don't know, like the the insane laughing, right? It's like when someone's like really belly laughing or maybe even performing laughing, the whole thing reeks to me of like a manic episode. Hmm. Like you said, the the music is not just happy or triumphant. It's like turned up to 11. And the uh, the laughing is the same way. And even the imagery, like we got that lyric about a mushroom cloud, but there's also a shot of someone in front of Tokyo Tower and there's a huge mushroom cloud behind it, which is you know, obviously very evocative imagery for an anime. And like a lot of the anime we really love, everything starts with the bomb, right? Hmm. It's, it's interesting you said manic episode. Um, I saw a thing when I was looking up information about this that I guess uh, Satoshi Kon has described this as a Denpai K, which means something it's like Denpai is like radio wave. And it's sort of like a subgenre that actually like when I was looking up about it includes several of the things that we've watched before on this show, including Serial Experiments Lane. Some people even put Evangelion into this category. It's it's sort of describing someone who's like isolated from society and kind of like living in their own fantasy world. And I think originally goes back to this story of like this schizophrenic guy who like murdered a bunch of like ex-co-workers and then you know said the the radio waves made me do it you know like sort of one of those like i'm getting messages through the air kind of thing Um, but then it became sort of like a subgenre of visual novels manga anime that sort of deal with unreliable narrators and kind of stories that may have some aspect of like mental illness or like resonance with those kind of like themes oh yeah that totally makes sense because like in in evangelion shinji very much is like on his own and sometimes inhabiting a very different emotional space than everyone else and even like asuka you know like how she experiences the world and how she performs in it is very off kilter from what everyone else is doing yeah, yeah. I mean, that one, it's a little bit harder for me to slot into it. I think Lane definitely feels like it makes sense with that sort of like genre description. Mm-hmm. So. Maybe it's just the like psychoanalyzing scenes, the train scenes from uh, uh, Ava that get it on that list. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, that makes sense. But definitely in Serial Experiments Lane. I mean, geez, she's, you know, inhabiting a whole different world, literally. Okay, so the episode starts with these shots of, and I love establishing shots that are very, you know, 
there's nothing ostensibly about the plot or anything that's happening in these initial shots, but it's setting this tone of a world where everyone is connected. You know, everyone is on their phone or talking or, or, you know, checking the internet on their phone or texting someone or, or talking to someone on the phone. And a lot of them, I don't know if I read this right, but it seemed like a lot of these conversations we were seeing the, the speaker was lying to the person on the other end of the uh, phone. Cause there was like a guy who was like pulled off to the side of the road uh, in a truck and telling the other person, no, the road is packed. There's no way I can get there today, mm-hmm. but he's just watching like an open road right yeah there's like you know a girl hanging out with this you know seems like a date or a boyfriend or something being like oh i can't make it today sorry yeah so a lot of yeah lying making excuses and and people inhabiting this digital space you know relating to each other that way and pressed up against each other on like subways and on platforms but not talking to each other only you know talking to distant people only connecting virtually Mm -hmm. And then I think we get our our next scene. Then we see, you know, this text on what I thought at first was like a chalkboard. Mm. And then we sort of zoom out and we see that actually this old guy is writing it on the parking lot um, outside of what turns out to be this this hospital. Mm -hmm. But I think that sort of illustrates one of Satoshi Kon's like techniques that he likes to have these shots that sort of disorient you a little bit where you're not sure what you're watching and then Mm. kind of like changes up. I think we get one in the next shot too. We see a bunch of like stuffed animals on a shelf and you're Mm -hmm. like probably thinking like, oh, this is like a kid's room or something like that. But uh, no, actually we're we're in the the office of this company. Is it F&M or something like that? That seems to make these little plush toys and stuff like that. Yeah, I think it was F&M. Yeah, and that's where our main character so far, uh, Sukiko Sagi, works. And in those establishing shots before we go inside with her, one, he completes this equation and then he, the old man looks up and sees her on a bus, which is cool to have this like visual connection between the two of them. Because Satoshi Kon very much, he uses the camera itself as a character a lot. And he equates, you know, a, a certain lens or perspective or a character yeah. with the camera at one time. So whenever he has one of those visual connection shots, it always tickles me. And, and he looks startled when he sees her, right? Mm-hmm. Something like, like he's there. been thinking about her, or maybe seen her in a vision before. And then uh, right before we go inside, we see there's graffiti on one of the public walls. And it says in the translation, they use enter little slugger Mm -hmm. which is not i don't know why they decide to translate it that way because the (laughs) japanese is just shonen bato which is bat boy right yeah and there is like you know there is something that means sort of like enter or something like that but yeah they they went for little slugger for shonen bat which would be uh, like young male bat okay yeah uh and that is the title of the episode as well so anyway, so back to Sukiko uh, Sagi, we we go inside with her to this her office space. And it's this like wh- what's cool is we see all of this concept art on her walls, which initially I thought was fan art because it's all childlike, like crayon mm-hmm. and things. And it's like rudimentary, right? It's not grounded in like a realistic art uh, practice. It's very much just like shapes and and dead on angles uh and it's all animals and uh, many of them like anthropomorphized in one way or another whether it's their face but as we pull away from the walls of her cubicle we see that this artist is in a terrible space for art she's in the middle of a, a cubicle like an office cubicle and everyone is able to bother her she gets no peace and quiet while she's working and we quickly learn that she is the linchpin for this company, right? <laughs> She's like the artist that made their cash cow, which as we see later in the episode, this Maromi, this like, I guess it's a dog. It's like a floppy eared pink dog. Plushes uh, of it are in uh, claw games. And there's even uh, photo booths that are branded with this image. Mm-hmm. We're getting this feeling of like ubiquity, this very popular flash in the pan character who's almost like uh, Hello Kitty in its like cultural influence, at least in the show, it seems. Yeah. And she's under a lot of pressure to kind of deliver her next 
big character that they mm-hmm. want to be as big of a hit as this Marumi was. Is this supposed to be making sense yet? <laughs> <laughs> like this story so far starts out with a bunch of laughing and then all the weird lies on cell phones and stuff. And then mm-hmm. we jump to this anime, like this designer person. Well, I mean, okay. So, I mean, the laughter, that's just like the credits. Mm-hmm. So that's not part of the the episode proper, right? So I feel like, yeah, we have this sort of montage of the excuses and lying and then the old guy and her. But but I guess like I I take your point that like we we've had these sort of very like disconnected elements so far. <laughs> I mean, I'm used to that with a Satoshi Kon movie, like none of them <laughs> make sense at the beginning. But I guess at this point, my impression is that this story is about this young designer. Yeah, yeah, I think, I, I think she's going to be our main character for the whole series. Like we were saying, it's a little bit of an anthology. Yeah. So, so I'd say she is probably the biggest of the individual characters, mm-hmm. but we definitely like jump around to a bunch of um, other characters. And that tracks with Cone's other works. He he likes to put generally a young female uh, uh, in the driver's seat, in the main character seat. Um, Perfect Blue and and even Tokyo Godfathers, even though that's a trio, the uh, kind of story we get the most insight into is the young woman. Millennium Actress, too. Hmm. Yeah. And but like you said, you know, she's kind of our main character, but it's kind of an ensemble piece. We get that feeling from all those characters we get to see long shots of in the opening. But this is also when we first see her creation, Maromi, who's not only a drawing, but is a plushie that she keeps on her and treats, you know, cares for almost like a pet. When it rides in her purse, it rides so that its head is out so that it can see where they're going. Right. Mm. Um, And Maromi, I think, I don't know that we can call it a main character or something, but it's definitely an image like a meme that will pervade the entire series. Mm. Yeah, so Sukiko's in a really tough spot, though, because the the manager needs to see her next project, her next moneymaker for the company, even though she's already, you know, put them on easy street. And she, uh, we start the scene with her deleting draft after draft after draft. She does a digital drawing, and then it's gone. And then another digital drawing, and it's gone. So, like, she's got essentially, you know, writer's block, artist block, and all of the pressure is on her. And not only the financial pressure, but we see that the other women in the office who I guess are like, there may be some fellow artists, but it looked like they were secretarial staff, um, office workers, right? They're all giving her the stink eye. Like no one likes her in this place. And I wouldn't be surprised as we go on in the series if we learn that she doesn't have any friends except for maybe this Maromi doll. Yeah, so it, so it seems like she worked late. She's walking home. Um, mm-hmm. It's dark outside. She sees this like old woman going through the trash on the street, gets kind of freaked out. And there's this shot I really love where for kind of like a split second, it's like very ambiguous. But the way when she gets freaked out, her Maromi sort of like its head like shakes as if it's like freaked out too or something like that. But it's just like the a little tiny hint. And then, you know, as she passes, the old lady is gone. And then, you know, it seems like darkness is following her. She's really freaking out and running, uh, which Blixa, you mentioned that's often a, a shot that you get in Satoshi Kon's work is someone someone running. Yeah. Mm. And then she, uh, you know, trips and spills all of her stuff. As she's going to reach for it under a car, she rips her clothes. She's having like a really shitty night. <laughs> yeah. And then right as that is happening and she's starting to break down, you know, we hear, you know, the music starts picking up. Mm-hmm. Um, we hear the sound of rollerblades and this kind of shadowy figure comes up behind her, this kind of curly haired school kid with rollerblades and a, a bat. Um, and I meant to pay attention, but I didn't pay attention. Was the bat bent in that original mm-hmm. shot of it? Yeah. Okay. I wasn't sure if that happened after the the kids start talking about the rumors later in the episode. Yeah. Um, I Yeah. <laughs> like, that's a really fascinating thing that they start talking and we see more and more of the character, right? Because we see, like, the image that's forming in the public consciousness. 
but so anyway, she gets she gets hit over the head. I guess the the next shot is then the the hospital. Yeah. Oh, I think um the next we go to back to her office and it's a very different oh, that's atmosphere. Right. Everyone's freaking out because she is now in the hospital and they don't know, you know, they kind of can't move on things without her because she's the creative driving force behind all of their money-making uh, uh, ventures. Um, what I really found fascinating is that right before this happens, right before she sees the old woman, she asks for a miracle. Mm. She's talking to Maromi, her doll, but she asks like, could you work that, Maromi? Could you make a miracle happen? And like, she kind of needs one, right? Because she's a week away from her deadline of a new character. Her getting hit though and going to the hospital, that kind of resets all timelines, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe it's not exactly what she wanted, but she did mm-hmm. ask for <laughs> this this shakabuku, this like life-changing blow to the head. It, it reminds me a little bit of Office Space. One of the scenes that always sticks with me is like this boss that's gotten hit by a car and he's like in these full casts, but like <laughs> he made enough money that he can quit his job and start his dumb game company or whatever. Oh my God, the jump to conclusions, Matt. It was a jump to conclusions, Matt. You see, it would be this mat that you would put on the floor and would have different conclusions written on it that you could jump to. That is the worst idea I've ever heard in my life, Tom. Yes, yes, it's horrible, this idea. Yeah, jump to conclusions. And, uh, you know, he says something like, oh, don't look down, like something great could happen to you, like happened to me. Like, (laughs) you know, the idea that this like horrible injury is actually like a lottery ticket or something. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. So after the little office scene where everyone's freaking out, we go to the uh, hospital and there's already two detectives questioning her in her hospital room, which I think is another recurring theme in his work. I think there's always detectives in Satoshi Kon's work. I know that in Paprika Mm. and in Perfect Blue there are, but I'm trying to remember if there are detectives or like prominent cops in uh, Tokyo Godfathers or uh, Millennium Actress. I guess not Millennium Actress, but kind of the the documenter. He's kind of a, he's uncovering the mystery of the story. But anyways, um, so these two detectives are questioning her, trying to get any sort of description they can out of her. And they're kind of pulling a nice cop you know, mean yeah. cop uh, kind of thing where the older one is exasperated with her and the younger one is saying like, oh, it's okay, you know, just take your time and walk through it as 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 you can. And she does give them a rudimentary drawing um, and a description of the bat. He had a bat and it was gold colored, which I think gold is a really interesting choice because there's something like immutable or not immutable, but like eternal or like uh, mm. uh, divine about gold or maybe just even royal. But And I don't know what kind of symbolism maybe in Japanese popular media or culture gold has the reference to. Sorry, Ben. Well, I was going to say, and then like as Blixit was pointing out when we were introducing this, that maybe this is also like an allusion to this um, superhero, early superhero character from manga and the the golden bat or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. So maybe that's part of it. Okay, we're going to have to do a little uh, detective work of our own on that one. One thing I, I noticed in this scene, uh, so they keep referring to her by her last name, Sagi-san. Mm. Sagi in Japanese can mean like a swindle or a con or a lie. Oh, so in some ways, you know, like like she's like named like Mrs. Liar or something like that. Oh, wow. I think it's a, a real name, too. So it's a little more subtle than that. But I think they're kind of like already with her name playing with this idea of like, you know, is she telling the truth or not? And, you know, as they're leaving, that's sort of. You know, the bad cop, he thinks that she's lying and Mm -hmm. and the good cop thinks that she's telling the truth. And on the way out, uh, they pass this guy in the lobby, Kawazu, um, who's sort of this sleazy reporter who I guess has hit an old man. In fact, the old man that we saw earlier in the episode riding in the parking lot, he had hit him with his car. Mm. And so now he owes the hospital a bunch of money. Um, But we see him trick this nurse into finding out what room the detectives were leaving from, um, I guess, so he can get a a scoop on this story. 
um, real sleaze bag. Mm -hmm. So I may be getting ahead of myself, but I was just thinking about when we were talking about the detectives interrogating the girl and like she drew a picture of, of the assailant and she's an artist and she was having this writer's block to draw her next big thing. And I just speculated, what if that was it? That was her next big thing that she drew that comes to mm. life or whatever. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, right. It's it's a character designer, like, and then we have this very compelling character now that, mm -hmm. yeah, from her little sketch drawing is getting into everyone's imagination. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. I hope I'm right. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think you're at least on the right track, I think, yeah. I love being on the right track. So the the journalist, this kind of muckraker, what was his name? Uh, Kawazu. 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 Yeah. Okay, so Kawazu, who I think looks like a lizard, <laughs> like a um, iguana. He's got these bulgy eyes. But he, uh, just for a little Easter egg, just so it gets in here, um, he runs into a nurse uh, as he's uh, trying to snoop around the hospital. But the nurse is the nurse from Tokyo Godfathers mm -hmm. who was like one of the main characters daughters who he meets towards the end of the film. So presumably this is the same hospital as is featured in Tokyo Godfathers, which is interesting. Yeah. I love that. But anyways, he uh, is hot on the trail of this, of Sukiko and he goes to this kind of, I don't know if it's an internet cafe or it said like use the internet for free. Um, so he looks up where she works so he can bother her office. And then he also chose these kids these like grade school kids uh some porn yeah I, I guess just to illustrate that he's a sleaze bag it's, it's a sleaze bag and i think like he used it to like jump them in line or something like that oh okay I, I think it's sort of like i guess also showing his resourcefulness or like how he's kind of willing to go to any length to Ugh. get whatever Okay, so I can imagine the conversation being something like, hey, kids, if you let me search something real quick, I'll show you where the porn is on the internet. Yeah, something like that. So he goes and bothers her office workers. Uh, he interviews the manager and the, the three um, female, the uh, women working at the office. And he works at a, a magazine called The Weekly Rumor, which is like just such a tabloid rag name for a, mm -hmm. a magazine. It's great. And then that's when this story starts to spread on the news. It's all over the television and people are gossiping. And this yeah. image of the Bat Boy starts to, or Little Slugger starts to emerge. I, th I think they're already in that, um, from the time she's in the hospital, when we get that mm. scene at the work, her workplace, like they're all scrambling to answer the phone. And I think there's already stuff on the TV at that point. Interesting. Okay. So, so I don't know if it's like kind of in parts, like the first one is just like, oh, she's in the hospital. No one knows what happened. And then he breaks the part about the kid with the bat or, or what. Mm -hmm. I think the image she drew is making the rounds. I, I, I don't know if it got leaked by the police or, or if like the police used it in their, uh, because oftentimes they'll give a description right to the public and like any concerned citizens, if you see someone like this, but uh, sorry. Oh, there's this TV personality who's blaming the attack on uh, violent media and mm -hmm. uh, or no, not quite on violent media, but actually uh, she makes a point for like removing violence from media. But I actually do agree with her point that there's some blame to be set on the repressive nature of Japanese society. Mm -hmm. That like people don't have healthy outlets. And so these extreme psychological cases surface. But then she talks about, you know, the, how the, the new generation is losing its ability to distinguish between the real and the fantasy. Um, you know, I guess this is in part because she's described this fifth or sixth grader as being the, the perpetrator of the attack. And that sort of, you know, this thing that maybe would have been unthinkable in that culture and then now god the kids these days they're they're out of control mm -hmm. what's going on uh, i sort of wonder if this is a little bit of a meta thing of like she is creating this fantasy narrative for adults about oh, how yeah. dysfunctional the kids have gotten or whatever and it's like you know the adults watching this that can't tell that she's full of shit <laughs> yeah and we actually go from her coverage the coverage of her to the cops uh, interviewing three young boys on the street and the boys like disagree with her. Mm -hmm. They're like, what are you talking about? Like, I know 
yeah, keep the violence in the video games. Don't let it be part of your real life because one of them says like this kid's going to get caught and his life is going to be messed up forever. Yeah. And so the cops continue to interview people and that takes them to uh, Sukiko's apartment complex where they uh, talk to, I guess he's just an otaku. He has like all of these anime posters up on his walls and he seems like kind of a shut in. Maybe he doesn't go outside a lot. And he tells them about the little old lady that uh, Sukiko saw um, the night she was hit by the bat boy. Um, so they follow up on that and go to her uh, home, which is a cardboard, like it's just cardboard and tarps. You know, it's a makeshift uh, a little room she's created on the street, um, but she's not there. Uh, and in place of her is, of course, our uh, journalist, our sleazebag. Yeah. So he's gotten ahead of the police in the investigation um, and actually has found and <laughs> stolen a clue from the scene mm-hmm. which is uh there there's it's another great shot it's just like very fast very easy to miss of him tucking a little piece of paper into his pocket mm-hmm. and then looking smug as he's leaving so so he goes on well i guess before we get there get back <gasps> the to best this. scene in the episode well wait what's the best scene in the episode what do you call it he slips the drawing into his pocket and then we shift to a scene of sukiko at home on her laptop and she's scrolling through comments on her like home page which was a little nod maybe to perfect blue because it's called like sukiko's room and the comments go from very quickly from oh my gosh i hope you're okay i'm really rooting for you to you're a liar and you've been a fraud since you were a kid. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> Why do all these online people hate her so much? But that negative, I don't know, energy really causes her discomfort. And she accidentally brushes Maromi onto the floor, which she's treated with, you know, so much care to this point. And then Maromi fucking manifests and like gets up. <laughs> And like this beautifully ragdoll, no bones, like walks over to her and starts talking to her and reassuring her of like, oh, don't listen to them. You're doing fine. They're just jealous of you, Tsukiko. Why is that? The moment that that little stuffed animal starts moving, I'm like, okay, this is Satoshi Kon work, of course. So the question is, is this someone who's going crazy or is this like some anime universe where supernatural things can happen? Yeah. And if Maromi has such a personality in her head and this particular doll is like a manifestation of that personality, like, you know, how real is this Maromi? She may be uh, having a, a, a mental episode or have some sort of uh, mental disorder, but this thing is real to her. It's like her only friend. It's a little bit too of like a tupa or something like that. Oh, a tulpa? Uh, Tulpa, yeah, that's what it's called. Um, have you heard of this, Blixa? Oh, yeah. I've made tulpas before. Oh, with success? Mm. <laughs> You're talking about chaos magic now, buddy. <laughs> is, is Are tulpas a thing from chaos magic? Uh, I mean, chaos magic steals from everything, but the idea is okay. you create a personality in your mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, you even partition a part of your brain. I don't know. Just a part of who you are to this aspect of your personality and then it becomes its own thing and then uh if you really believe in that kind of stuff it goes out into the world like a gremlin or something to do whatever it's supposed to do i guess i hadn't heard that like of it actually like becoming real part but i think there is like you know like a reddit community and these people that it's sort of like you if you meditate and like imagine this thing for long enough then you don't have to keep trying to imagine it and it'll just sort of like happen on its own and then you have this little imaginary character sort of like you can manifest your own imaginary friend or something like that. oh wow and then uh, yeah that's not too far off in my experience i got to the point where i could have a conversation not knowing what the other party was going to say <laughs> you're in maromi <laughs> and um and tulpa is it a tibetan tradition is that where the word comes from that sounds about right. Okay, yeah, okay. So it's a translation from Tibetan Book of the Dead. Hmm. So fascinating. And I'm sure there's lots of different traditions, like psychological or magical, that have dealt with this kind of phenomenon. But I think that's where the word comes from. Oh, the fun little segue. <laughs> yeah, so she's got this little tulpa. It's great. And the next scene is she is walking on the street with a crutch. She's obviously still pretty injured. She skinned up her knee real bad. 
and she's confronted on the street by Kawar, Ka, not Kawaru, Kawazu. Yeah, Kawazu. Kawazu, uh, who obviously is trying to get the story out of her, like get more details and and uh, make a bunch of money off of you know uh, a firsthand in uh, what do you call it interview? Yeah, the scoop. Yeah, and I can't remember she. She drops her cell phone. He picks it up for her and offers her the cell phone and his card. And she just takes the cell phone and attempts to leave. And I can't remember what it is he says. He shows her the picture that she dropped. I think it's the same one she was reaching under the car to try to get. Mm -hmm. So maybe this was like an important design or something like that. So I don't know if he's sort of holding it hostage or if, you know, that is enough to like intrigue her into talking to him okay. yeah so they they sit down at this sort of like outdoor cafe and you know he he's motivated to get this story but it seems like he can't help being like a creep too and he's sort <laughs> of like leering at her you know he looks up That's her skirt so, yeah. and he drops this spoon under the table and you know it's interesting you said sort of like we had the good cop bad cop thing in that earlier interrogation and he seems to be sort of like a one-man band, like he's both the good cop and the bad cop, like he's telling her. And perv cop. Yeah, the perv <laughs> cop. But, you know, he went by his office and he seems to have this amazing ability to do impressions of her coworkers, you know, but he's sort of like just nagging her. He's like, mm-hmm. you know, everyone hates you, all this shit. <laughs> but then it's like, oh, but, you know, they're just jealous of your success, like, you know, like... I totally sympathize with you and like everything you're going through. And I feel like he's sort of doing the good cop, bad cop to her. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I think both under the pressure of his questions, I mean, she started starting to like freak out a little bit. And then coincidentally, as these like rollerbladers happen to be passing, um, then she has this flashback to the scene of the crime um, and suddenly remembers that her assailant was wearing these golden skates. Sorry, you look like you're going to say something, Alex. No, yeah. So what I'm fascinated by is that I think he ha- he has the skates when he attacks her. But it's interesting to me that when he she initially draws him, she draws him flat-shoed. And she mm-hmm. doesn't remember the skates. And then she adds that detail later. Yeah. Well, and, and I think the way this works, you know, it could be both that oh, the sound of the skates cued her memory mm-hmm. and she had this like flashback and then like, you know, now she remembers or it could be sort of like her brain is spinning to come up with some new detail of this character she's creating and she hears the skates and that's like the sudden inspiration is like, oh yeah, this guy, he was, it wasn't just a golden bat. He was wearing these golden roller skates too. Brilliant. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and that, that would be a detail that she could tell him that might get him off her case, at least for a little bit. And that she also takes that piece of information to the cops, the detectives. Well, and, and it comes right after he confronts her and he's like, are you telling the truth? Did you just make this up? Mm-hmm. So it's sort of, I don't know, it's like interesting timing too. Definitely. Yeah. So uh, she goes and talks to the cops, uh, gives this detail of the golden skates and then we get more shots of the public talking about it and that's when we get the um photo booth where these these three young girls posing in a photo booth and they're talking about uh the bat and how it's broken like a a dog's leg and then they do this kissy face and i i just thought it was so interesting that maromi is so ubiquitous in this world already and so and then after the um what do you call it after the Uh, story gets more detailed in the public eye, the journalist goes to try to suss her out at her own apartment. So he got her uh, address somehow um, and doesn't find her there. But instead, as he's like walking away, I think he's waiting for her at the door and she's coming home and sees him and is like, okay, fine, I'm not coming home. And she like reverses course and he follows her. Yeah. And this is also apartment 510. We mentioned, you know, that's what the old man had drawn on the Mm -hmm. sidewalk, the solution to his equation. It was her hospital room. um, And now it's her, her apartment. Um, And I was looking up some, sometimes numbers in Japanese, there's sort of like this phonetic correspondence between numbers and words. So I was trying to see if there is something specific for 510. And so you could, it can be pronounced as goto, 
you know, that has a bunch of different meanings. One of them is like a mistaken answer or response. But, you know, there's nothing that like super sticks out. Oh, you think that maybe I don't know. But that's like one of like 15 readings. I don't know if I'm just connecting dots in the the dark or something. I mean, I really like that because he could have, you know, Satoshi Kon is known for doing this stuff and he could have picked any number. But that's really fascinating because like if we're talking about is she lying or not, does she even know if she's lying or not? Because like Mm -hmm. like you said, is it that she thought about something to say and then gate t- and uh, came up with the skates? Or is it that reflexively, not even consciously, her brain is mistakenly mm. filling in this information? Yeah. So, so she lost her memory when she was hit at the head and now she's trying to come up with what happened. But maybe it's sort of like a false recovered memory. Exactly. Really fascinating. Um, so then we get our last scene proper uh, where he, the journalist is or coming or walking after her. She's hobbling away on her crutch. She trips again. Uh, her handkerchief with Maromi's image falls in the um, puddle. And there is this really interesting. There's another one of those shots where it shows her and then it shows Maromi in her bag. And just for a split second, it looks like Maromi's eyes look up as if to Uh, get an eyeful of the uh, journalist following her. Hmm. But she leaves the handkerchief, gets back up, hobbles away. He grabs the handkerchief. And as he's walking after her to give it back to her, we get the sound of the skates again and this really awesome, ominous Hmm. music. So so when he picks up the handkerchief, he like looks like, oh, I've like got it or something like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was trying to figure out what that is. And so maybe it's like, oh, he can use this to convince her to talk to him. Be like, oh, you dropped your handkerchief. Is that what that look he's giving is? Yeah, I think, you know, he met her on the street and she wasn't interested. But then he flashed, you know, oh, I could return this to you. Hmm. And that was enough to get her to the cafe. So if it's something else personal to her, like a handkerchief, you know, what else might that get him? Hmm. And so we get our second victim now. You know, it's interesting. She asked for a miracle and then she gets hit in the head with a bat. Um, and that's a little, you know, that that's a bit of a stretch to say that she got what she asked for. But now <laughs> in a moment of crisis where she doesn't want this guy following her and definitely doesn't want him to have anything personal of hers, suddenly the bat boy appears again and mm-hmm. hits him over the head. Uh, which kind of is what she needed in that moment. It skates past him in front of her and she's fallen again and dropped the Maromi doll. And there's this awesome shot. The Maromi doll is situated in the head of the shadow of Batboy mm. and it pans up on him. And I was like, you know, I'm, I didn't think about this in those terms, but are we dealing with a tulpa of some kind? Like is Batboy this man is it not a real character is it a manifestation of either a specific person's uh, psyche or the collective psyche of you know society believing in this crime wave of violent you know sixth graders and then i think too i mean she's the only witness to this right mm-hmm. and she is holding a crutch <laughs> Just saying. Interesting. (laughs) And the way that Maromi is situated in the head of the shadow, it just makes me think like, oh, Maromi was her creation. Is Batboy also her creation? Hmm. And and so he just says, I I think it's translated in the sub to um, I'm back, but Tadaima, which I think has come up a couple of times on this podcast because it's something that's sort of hard to translate. um, But it's the phrase you say, when you're like coming back home at the end of the day. Oh. Um, so sort of something more like, like I'm back home or something like that. Okay, so there's obviously, at least narratively, but there's some connection between her and Golden Bat here. Yeah, and it, it's, it, it's a phrase that I think has come up a co- couple of times in this similar way of sort of like, you know, I think there was a scene in Evangelion where like Shinji is like back to the apartment with Misato and like now it feels like home. So it's like this like Tadaima moment or something. Mm. <laughs> well, this is one of my favorite scenes in this episode. Like when she was had fallen down and then Batboy's shadow looms in front of her and pans up and says Tadaima. It's just so stark and quiet. 
And as she says that, techno music starts playing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I just laughed out loud when that happened. It was so Kon Susumi Hirasawa. Mm-hmm. No, yeah, that that is like a great moment. And it like feels like it's like, oh, it's like the episode ender. And then we get this little tag at the end where then we see the detectives, right, who have made this bet about whether or not it's real. Um, and we see the headline that, you know, a second, there's a second victim now of the Shonen Bato. Uh, yeah, which again, we see that the story is getting ahead of the investigation mm-hmm. because these are the detectives investigating it and they're reading about the second assault. They're like, <laughs> okay, I guess. And, well, and something interesting too, and, you know, I, I don't know how much this is just me reading into things, but I think it's sort of this ambiguous story, but it sort of reminds me of, you know, like some stories like Jack the Ripper. There's kind of like a popular theory that a lot of it might have just been the sensationalism of newspaper reporters at the time and that mm-hmm. they were making up the letters and sending them to themselves to like sell this story. And, you know, some people even think the same thing about like the Zodiac killer, Ooh. you know, so I think we have this kind of sketchy journalist who needs money and is looking for a scoop. So I think there's the possibility too that he has now kind of concocted you know, he's the one continuing the story now and saying that he was attacked and then that's his, the big scoop he got. Right. What bigger scoop than for you to be the next star (laughs) of the show, right? Wow. Really fascinating. And then we've also, not to spoil anything, but we've, we've got a dynamic here that we'll see repeated that will have a mirror of characters uh, in the show uh, several times. There are some mirror effects between Tsukiko and Kawazu, but like specifically in this episode, they're both victims of uh, the assault, the the golden bat. So strong starter episode. Can't wait to dive into this more with the two of you and some guests. Anything else either of you want to say about the show so far? We do have our next time on, which is sort of like, it's, a, I think, a very interesting type of next time on. So this little uh, white text on a black background comes up that says prophecy. And then we get some little clips of the next episode. But we have that old man character from the intro standing on the moon and like <laughs> talking in riddles about what we'll see. In like a magician's tuxedo. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so, something I was like listening to or looking at had sort of referred to Cone as like sort of being a David Lynch-like director, which I hadn't really thought of that ever before but then when i was like watching this outro i was like oh this feels like very much out of twin peaks like kind of like the, the giant standing there in the yeah like the red room or like the sort of prophecies from that giant guy while he's sleeping where oh, she's yeah. sort of like being intentionally a little trippy and weird but it sort of works so i thought that was cool i'd really like the dream like uh next time on um and i was interested that like him presenting the stuff was original animation just for the next time on which i think is really interesting Mm -hmm. because most shows don't put any money into the next time on so i'll just do like a sometimes a voiceover of footage of the next episode yeah Um. uh Okay, so we don't have a guest. So who who has a recommendation for the audience? Oh, go ahead. (laughs) Well, so when I was looking up an interview for this, I saw, or sorry, when I was looking up information for this, I saw an interview with uh, Satoshi Kone where Mm -hmm. he recommended an anime I hadn't heard of. So I thought that might work as the recommendation for this episode. Yeah. Um, So have either of you guys seen uh, the anime Mind Game? No. Oh, my God. It got recommended to me. Okay. Yeah. So it's Masaki Yuasa, if that helps anyone find it. But yeah, Satoshi Kone was saying, you know, it hadn't come out in the U.S. at the time he was writing, but he recommended it Mm. and then said he was looking forward to seeing uh, Fahrenheit 9-11, the Michael Moore movie. So I thought that was interesting. (laughs) Mm. So there's a novelty question I want to ask. Yeah. So, my pen pen pal (laughs) friends, what was your best worst for uh, 2022? Wait, so what does that mean? Like, just best thing that happened and worst thing that happened? Yeah, your favorite or least favorite. Uh, Serial Experiments Lane was the best new thing that I experienced. Like, I had been, you know, 
uh, uh, back of my mind waiting for 20, 30 years, whatever it was. No, probably like 20 years to see that. And so uh, finally seeing it was really fascinating. Worst? Oh, I don't know. I've watched a lot of bad uh, <laughs> movies recently. Uh, a few of them on Criterion, which like, I'm sure they're not bad movies like film wise making, but they just weren't that interesting. There was one I watched called The Shout, which was about strange dreamlike infidelity and a guy telling a story to another guy in a mental facility. So you're like, okay, how much of this can I really trust? If I could jump in line, my favorite pen pen pals moment of 2022 was um, that cabin retreat that we got to do meeting in IRL and, uh, you know that we made a secret episode joke earlier, but we did record an episode while the three of us were together that weekend. So like somewhere out there, there's another lost episode. That's true. Yeah, lost episode archives. Okay, yeah. well, if, if we ever get uh, enough people listening that we need a Patreon, then I will make those into episodes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, so my, my biggest bummer was um, I had done some booking that didn't work out and uh, fumbled at the very, very last minute. Um, that was my low for 2022. Mm. Well, I guess, I don't know. I feel like I'm still kind of blanking. When Alex answered, I was thinking sort of like, oh, what stuff had I watched this year? And I think for me, oh, yeah. Severance was maybe my favorite like culture oh. thing of 2022. And then in terms of worst, I don't know. I don't know. I feel like I very rarely like hate, hate things. <laughs> my My favorite thing that is like not good but was like kind of enjoyable in 2022 was uh the watcher Hmm. if any of you guys watch that it's like the guy who did american horror story it's sort of like vaguely based on a true story but it's like these people move into a house and then start getting creepy letters about something going on and it's it's not it's not bad but it's just like very very campy and not great but it's sort of like a enjoyable easy watch i guess if we are going to identify the things that we watched i would say the most amazing thing i saw in 2022 was everything everywhere all at once oh, that's a good one holy moly got an everything bagel yeah oh i love everything bagels you will love this movie then okay. <laughs> maybe i'll check it out cool uh sounds good let's uh let's do that then all right take it away Brooksa. pen pen pals Show them my